Headquarters to all units. Headquarters to all units. All units stand by for on patrol with the PPD. Airing now on WTBR 89.7 FM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to another new pre-recorded episode of On Patrol with the PPD here on WTBR 89.7 FM, Pittsfield Community Radio, simulcast on Pittsfield Community Television. My name is Mike Wynn. I am one of the co-producers and co-hosts of this allegedly weekly radio program. This is a slightly different format. We're recording on Wednesday, March 2nd for a program that you will be listening to on Friday, March 4th. I'm joined in studio this morning by... Lieutenant Matthew Hill working the soundboard. Good morning, Lieutenant. Good morning. Captain Gary Traversa is over there coaching on the engineering side. Good morning, Captain. Good morning. And our guest this morning will be Lieutenant Jeff Bradford, the evening shift commander. Good morning, Lieutenant. Good morning, Chief. Uh, we can't play the weather, and I'm not a good enough prognosticator to try to predict the news, um, but we can talk about some newsworthy items. I, I am fairly confident that in two days the lead news story will still be the situation in Ukraine. Um, you know, the news from overnight was not great. Uh, the Russian military has stepped up their attacks on civilian population centers. Um, and so we expect, you know, more troubling news about that. Um, but the world community is rallying, and I think the most significant announcement made last night, that would have been Tuesday night, during President Biden's State of the Union address, is that many Western countries, <coughs> excuse me, have decided to cut off their airspace to Russian overflights, which will definitely complicate, um, you know, Russian commerce. So, more to come on that. In police-related news, the lieutenant and his squad had a great case last night. A uh, real-time reported armed robbery at the South Street subway. Uh, patrol and detectives responded. Two suspects arrested pretty much within minutes of the, uh, of the initial report. Uh, those suspects were held overnight on $25,000 bail and will have been arraigned on Wednesday morning. So we'll have some information about the status and, and whether they were held on dangerousness by the time you hear this on Friday. And in other big news uh, for the week, later this morning... Um, Captain Thomas Dolly and uh, one of our co-responders, Ms. Ariel Ramirez, and I will be joining the city's Homelessness Advisory Committee to provide them with a briefing on the new the city's Pittsfield Hub table, which is our multidisciplinary high-risk assessment team, which uh, we trained up in December and implemented in January. And uh, we're very excited about the early success with that. So uh, with that... Let's get to the program. Uh, as I said, this is a pre-recorded episode. We're recording on a Wednesday for a show that will be heard on Friday. And Captain, is this the first time we've done it this way? Pre-recording? Um, we we might have done it one other time. I know that we've played previous episodes and repeated them if we couldn't get out here. But I don't know that we actually deliberately pre-planned one just because of personnel and availability it wasn't enough to remember that we did it <laughs> i know i didn't do it <clears throat> all right so with that since again we can't listen to jacob for the weather because he's good but i don't know that he's 40 fa 48 hours in advance good so we'll have to see about that so we're going to get to the show and as i said our guest this morning is lieutenant jeffrey bradford um 
I'm kind of excited to have the lieutenant on as our guest. It's, it's surprising we haven't had you before. I know. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> I I've, uh, haven't connected yet. Um, lieutenant Bradford is a, is a long-standing veteran of the department. He has a lot of diverse experiences over the course of his career. But he's also got some fascinating interests outside of the job, and we'll hear more about that later. So, Jeff, usually when we have a member of the department on, we kind of start with the biographical stuff. You know, you know, everything before you became a cop. Who are you? Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What'd you do when you were in school? Just tell us about you first. All right. Well, I was born and raised in uh, <coughs> Berkshire County. I spent the first 11 years of my life living in Dalton. Uh, then I, my family moved to Pittsfield. I uh, went through the Pittsfield Public Schools. I uh, graduated from Pittsfield High School in 1985. Uh, and then I was, wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do at that point. Uh, I was involved in some martial arts at the time, so I took a job uh, for that summer that I uh, first graduated that first year, and I worked at a martial arts studio as an instructor. And then, Which school? Uh, it was the Fred Valari's okay. Studios of Self-Defense down <coughs> on East Street. I'm not even sure that franchise exists anymore. <coughs> I don't know. But, uh, you know, I had started with that when I was about 15 uh, and continued through high school. So while I was working there, I made the, the decision that uh, I wanted to become a police officer. Um, so I knew I needed to get some experience working some security jobs. And there wasn't a lot of security jobs in Pittsfield or Berkshire County at that time. So I ended up moving to the Boston area, and I had some family out there. And so I lived in the suburbs of Boston, and I picked up uh, my first uh, security uh, job, which was at a, a nursing home facility that was like a, a, a level one, two, and three nursing home. So it had uh, condominiums that people would live in, and then they would eventually, as they grew older, make their way into the level two and, and then maybe to level three. And then from there, I applied for another security job at a hotel. And I, I think that's really where I got the, the most experience for um, becoming a police officer. I worked at the Marriott in Burlington, Mass., just yeah. off 128. And I worked there for a year. And it was a great job. I was young, um, and that, that job there was a corporate hotel, and we had domestics. We had a bar that we had to help manage, work in the door. We had fights. Uh, we had proms. They would have weddings. Uh, we had regular crimes that would occur in our parking lot, stolen vehicles, vehicles being broken into. So I got a lot of experience with uh, interacting with people and, and, and dealing with those types of situations. Um, and then from there, I went into a, uh, had an opportunity to go work for a private investigator um, who had a, a successful uh, company in the area. And he set me up undercover working in, in Boston at the old Sears Robux catalog warehouse. And it used to be where they shipped, if you remember, the old catalog, I'm dating yeah. us, but uh, back then they used to <coughs> ship all the, uh, the goods that people ordered from there. And so they set me up as an employee there, um, and I worked there for about three months, uh, making uh, some contacts and buying some, some, some property that employees were diverting from the warehouse. So, so um, inventory loss stuff. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and, so, and then after that... Uh, so what year was that? That would have been probably 1990, 1989, 1990. Do you know if you could still buy a house from Sears Roebuck in 1990? I think I think you could buy those <laughs> in the catalog. I, I don't remember where I was recently. I, I was talking to somebody, and they pointed out a house next door, and it was a Sears Roebuck house. I'm like, that's just fascinating. 
All right, sorry. Yeah, no. Um, and then I, I explored the, the, uh, the uh, opportunity to go into the military. Um, and at the same time, I had taken the civil service test to be a police officer in Pittsfield. Um, I did really well on the test, so I decided to uh, not go in the military. At that time, the, unfortunately, the department wasn't hiring a lot, um, so I had to take the test a couple of times, uh, stay on the list. And eventually, after about six years, uh, when I became... Wow. Yeah, when I was 26 years old, <clears throat> I, I was able to uh, get hired and go to the police academy. And uh, so, yeah, 1993, July of 93 is when I entered the academy. So we've talked about that a lot on the show in the past. And people, people think that, okay, you know what, so I want to be a Pittsfield police officer. I'll swing by 39 Allen Street. I'll grab an application. I'll fill it in. And, uh, you know, they'll give me a call, get an interview. I'll be a cop. Right? And first of all, it's civil service. So you alluded to that. Um, six years, that means you took the exam three times right? and did to wait out the, the life of the list. And we've had officers recently, uh, recruited officers in the last couple of years that when I ask them, they're like, oh, I took it one time and I got on. They don't have any idea how fortunate they are, right? Especially back in the 90s, you know, we had people taking the test three, four, five times before they got that call. Um, so it's, it's a commitment, right? You got you to gotta know that you want to do this if you're going to, because you got you to gotta have a job, you got to live. Right, you got to be otherwise um, just getting through life while you're waiting for that opportunity. Yeah, it's such a contrast to today because when I was hired and when you were hired, people didn't leave the job unless they were fired right. uh, or retired and, you know, retired on an injury <clears> or retired. <throat> today, obviously, we see much a much different situation where we have officers uh, coming and going. And then coming back. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not just law enforcement, right? When I teach supervisory classes, one of the things that we discuss in the supervisory class is different generations in the workforce and how different generations interact. And sociologists, well, this, was, this was originally identified for, we'd say, Gen Y employees, millennials, you know, people in the generation younger than us. And it's accelerated since. Um, you know, sociologists 10 years ago estimated that your average... <coughs> millennial entering the workforce would have seven different careers before they retired not seven positions within the same field seven different fields um, over the course of a, a regular work life so you know that's that's what we're dealing with all right so you went to the academy in summer 93 um, and I started working for the city in the fall of 93 and I know that because when you guys graduated you were the first graduating class after I had established the resource center in the west side and you were the first group of rookies that i had the opportunity to work with yeah i remember meeting you for the first time down on the, on the west side neighborhood resource center so who did you go to the academy with i went to the academy with <coughs> jerry miller rob hart and michael nikorchuk you're the sole survivor yes <laughs> none of them are with us anymore um th that was a great group of guys i remember meeting you guys and uh when you you came out and you all went to your assignments. You were just hard charging, right? So Rob, God bless him, right? He, he was probably the first peer that I met that was also a successful entrepreneur, right? So he had been a cop and he was uh, changing direction and pivoting. He got into fitness and uh, he and his wife founded the Lennox Fitness Center, which I thought was very cool. But then... 
they were also the first people I knew that signed a contract with a cell phone carrier to build a cell phone tower on their property. And that was the end of him as a cop. <laughs> uh, that was pretty quick. Jerry uh, finished his, his advanced degree and parlayed that. He went into government service in the state of New York. I, I don't know if he's still working or if he recently retired. Do you know? He, he's retired <coughs> from, his, from his New York government job, and I don't know the name of the company, but he is, he's working for a, a, a company that developed um, it's either software or some type of program that detects uh, drivers who are under the influence of narcotics. Nice. And so the last time I spoke with him, he was traveling around the country training law enforcement agencies. The last time I spoke with him, I got a call in the office completely out of the blue and uh his work it, for the state of new york because he was very involved in setting standards for law enforcement training his work had intersected the justice institute where i sometimes teach and so he had gotten my name through his inquiries and he's caught he was calling he's like I, I need to talk to you about this program at the institute I'm like that's that's weird small world and then uh officer nicole mike mr nicole now mike uh, he had a highly successful career with us and then jumped over to investigations and security for the sheriff's office. And, you know, now he's basically, uh, he's living Captain Grady's dream, right? You don't have to shovel, you don't have to shovel sunshine playing a lot of golf. So the hard rock, hard rock group when you guys hit the ground running. It was difficult at that time because we were the young officers and there was, they hadn't hired very uh, many officers prior to us. So we were up against uh, you know, a lot of veteran officers who had reached points in their career where, um, let's just say, a lot of them weren't proactive. <coughs> so we kind of st stuck together and decided that we were going to be proactive and back one another up and just go out there and get it. And, and for people who maybe aren't from the, the city of Pittsfield, you know, people who relocated here or spend time here for recreation but don't live here, if you don't know, right, so... You went to the academy in the summer of 93, so you probably graduated early 94? Uh, before, yeah, de yeah, December. December 94. Just 93. All right. All right, yeah. So the city of Pittsfield in that early to mid period of the 1990s was completely different uh, from a public safety and policing point of view than it even is now. And everything is cyclical, but that period of time when I when I first got hired by the city and uh, started working in the West Side, I tell I go to community meetings now and I tell people about what you were dealing with as a police officer, what I was dealing with in community policing, and then eventually as a police officer, they don't believe it, right? So, a couple of things had happened. One long prior to you coming on, um, the department had it wasn't. It wasn't a consent decree, but the department had entered into an agreement with the Mass AG's office about some complaints that had been received long prior during um, some fairly significant operations. And so we had some parameters, uh, you know, additional parameters that the department was operating under that kind of, I'm not going to say hobbled, but they, they put some additional steps in place. So traditional street level enforcement was kind of discouraged in, in some ways. And the the new york in particular but to some extent connecticut drug trafficking organizations had realized what a lucrative market there was here and so street level drug dealing was a constant constant per, and like when i say street level drug dealing so i went to the academy in 95 and i think i've told this story before um 
my two academy partners came to pick me up at my apartment in the west side in a police car and we were all wearing police jackets over our pt gear and somebody tried to sell me drugs in my driveway it, it was that persistent like you could drive down columbus ave and drug dealers would literally jump in front of your car and try to sell you crack cocaine um it it was it was just a daily reality at that time and it was accompanied by a high degree of violence right so there were several establishments uh alcohol establishments that were being frequented by in particular um street gang members from the albany and troy area and there would be gunfire in these bars you know not necessarily midweek but it was pretty routine on the weekends that we were going to be rolling on shooting calls um you know, I won't, we won't call out the bars, but a couple downtown bars, a couple north end bars, a couple west side bars that it was not unusual for us to break up, you know, bar fights and, and take guns off of people. It, it just it was nuts. Um, and people don't remember that. It, it's you know, we, we look at some of the shooting crimes and crimes of violence we have now and we're like, oh, it's so much different. It's like, it, what's different is it's more quickly reported. Right. It, it, you know, I told the story to somebody recently. If we, if I had, if we were working together in those couple of years after I got out of the academy, and it was a midnight shift, and we had a, a big deal like a high scale incident, and we wrapped it up before three in the morning, the local media wouldn't pick it up until like seventy two hours later when everything was over in court. They just there weren't any reporters to come talk to us, right? And so as long as the paperwork was done before the sun came up, there was no media requests. It was crazy. Yeah, it was, it's, it was night, <clears throat> night and day. Um, I remember when I first started working the streets, that cell phones weren't a thing. Everything was running off pagers um, or just, actually before even pagers, it was just driving down the street and getting flagged, flagging someone down, yeah. a dealer. And um, fast forward uh, a number of years later, and I was working narcotics here for Pittsfield, and I remember being in an <clears throat> unmarked the detective car with... Uh, three other investigators and we flagged down outside a, a downtown bar and someone wanted to sell to us and we ended up buying crack cocaine and it was just amazing that uh, it was that bad that 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 could happen you know well you know we'll we'll get back to your career and then we'll talk a little bit about working narcotics particularly in the early 90s because i did a little bit of that too and i'm not going to say it was easy but it wasn't it wasn't complicated like it is today i mean in comparison it was pretty easy um so how long did you spend in patrol i spent uh about i want to god i say about four or five years in patrol and, and during that course of that time i was fortunate enough that uh during my second or third year i was able to uh, get on get into what then was the pittsfield uh, what was it called back then? Not SRT. It's I called, think, I think it was I, still the SRT. Might have been. Our, our it, had just, it had just gone through a renaming when I got picked up in 97. So. Yeah, the team was going through some reorganizing. <clears throat> uh, they had a commander that was uh, had been removed or had stopped the team. And uh, I had some <clears throat> EMT experience. Um, I, had, I had gotten my emergency uh, medical technician certification before I got hired. I worked part-time for county ambulance for a couple of years. And so... I was able to get on the team as a team medic, um, so which was great because that provided me with a lot more training and opportunities. Um, uh, so from there, I progressed uh, uh, in the team, and I 
went on for many for about 15 years total before I ended up leaving the team but uh, and then also became a field training officer which is probably one of the the biggest things I'm proud of uh, during my career is the opportunity to train new officers who are coming in on the job to train them how to do the job properly safely so that they become productive police officers proactive police officers and so at some point, I applied for the narcotics position. I think I had five years on the job, and I was able to secure that job. And uh, then I learned a lot more about the streets and, and you know, writing search warrants and you know, working in a plainclothes capacity. And So let's go back to the team and field training very briefly. So we talked about the team uh, on the program a lot because, like you, um, many of our successful commanders and supervisors did time with the team right that's that is definitely a path for, forward uh, for success but many of us were also field training officers and i think in my experience over the last 15 years that combination time with the team and time as a field training officer is by far the the biggest predictor of success um in the department so you were, if memory serves me correctly, you were among the very first group of officers selected to be a field training officer. Like you, you were in that inaugural group. Yes. Yeah. The, it was established. <clears throat> uh, and then I think within that first year, I was given an opportunity. Yeah. And uh, so what happened was the department decided to establish formal field training. We adopted the Ann Arbor, Michigan model, sent a bunch of people to go get trained. And then a couple of those people got promoted, like right away, before we even... Um, had any probationers and so they had to select a second group of us to go through the training and i was in the second group because i'm two years junior to you in in service um and so that looking back at that that was so much fun we got to write the program from the ground up and i have distinct memories of field training officer win and field training officer bradford running scenario-based training on the old Oboiski's Bakery down on Seymour Street. We'd take our two field training cars and we'd go down and say, okay, you know, Jeff's going to be the caller and I'm going to be the defendant and you're responding to a domestic. And, you know, two o'clock in the morning, we'd just run this drill on the side of the road. <laughs> we had a blast doing that stuff. Um, but then you went to the drug unit. I, I remember you going to the drug unit because you beat me out for that job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I beat out uh, Lieutenant Madalena too. I think I beat out, um, but it you know it was very uh, competitive. People want to do those um, those positions. People want to get in those positions. You know, Mike Nakorchuk. Um, I don't think he talked to me for a year after I got that job because you know going to the academy with Mike that was his career path was in the police department. It's, he wanted to be a narcotics investigator, and for me it was. I knew I have a tendency to plan my my careers out five years so. I saw I saw it as an opportunity um, to gain more experience so that I become a more effective supervisor down right. the road because I wanted to be a sergeant and then hopefully someday a lieutenant. And I knew that the more well-rounded I was, um, that when I was sitting in the chair downstairs as a sergeant, I would be you know a more uh, more of a wealth of information to provide to the patrolman. And that that self-awareness, that knowledge, at that time in in the that would be the late '90s, early 2000s. That was an outlier, right? Because I think you and I are very similar that way. Most of our personnel at the time thought, I'm going to pick one thing. That's going to be my thing. I'm going to compete until I get it. And I'm going to ride that thing out. And they thought that longevity and assignment was a 
was a path forward, and it it proved time and time again not to be. Uh, people who got into one area and stayed there um, generally stayed there. It was very few who managed to break out of that. Um, some did, right? You know, some some rose to high levels of command, but most people found that 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 pa- that plan stymied their advancement. It didn't improve it. Yeah, and I think field training, is, like you had alluded to earlier, is is a great opportunity for someone who wants to be a supervisor down the road because they are supervisors. Our, our field it, training officers are supervising probationers, new officers, and and evaluating them, which is actually something our supervisors don't yeah. do with their patrolmen. I I don't know if you remember this. It was right. We actually had to delay. This just came up. It would have been your class, I think. We had to delay the. Uh, we had to delay onboarding a group of probationers because we were still in field training school. They graduated before we had gotten our certifications. And um, when we were getting ready to onboard them, former Chief Riello came down to us, and he looked at the field training team, and he said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically what he said is, I'm looking at a room full of the department's future supervisors because each of you has decided that you're not only going to supervise yourself, you're going to take responsibility for supervising the person who's in that car with you. And you're the only people in the department who have made that decision. Um, and he thought it was a big deal. It was a big deal. But because we were willing to do that, we got, like I, I remember at the time, we got a guaranteed specialized school a year because we weren't being compensated so we could find a school we wanted to go to put in a training request no questions asked i got sent to um i got sent to heckler and coke in virginia twice for my specialized fto schools i did even better i <coughs> i really challenged the system i found a school in uh, virginia and i went to an executive protection school hnk yeah hnk yeah. Uh, executive executive protection school and um it cost several thousand dollars between you know the school it, it was it was a very high quality uh program and I, I learned a tremendous amount and i was able to bring that back to the department and to and, the team and use it on on the uh, srt team um and even to this day um a lot of it has stuck with me in terms of um just being aware of Advanced, when you do advances, you learn how to oh, yeah. advance and, and, you know, and analyze a structure and a building and exits and entrances and safe zones. And it's, it's, it was probably the, one of the best top three trainings that I had ever so, gone to. So I'm not sure of the exact, I'm, I'm pretty sure I have this order right. I'm not, I'm not sure that I've got it exactly. One of the schools I went to as a, for my specialized school was at H&K, and it, it wasn't a certification school. It was basically like a show and tell. And so I got to go spend five days at H&K, and over the course of the five days, I got to do like four hours of 10 of their schools. So I had half a day of the executive protection. And if memory serves me correctly, I went to that before you went down for EP because I had the outline for EP, and I was trying to decide if I wanted to go back for something else. I picked active countermeasures. I wanted to go down and do defensive tactics for SWAT, and you picked EP. Yes. (laughs) Um, and I think we're the only two who got to take advantage of that particular set of training. I remember coming back from the school and the, uh, the, the policy changed from any school that you want to go to, to, yeah. all right, there's a thousand dollar cap. Yeah. You know, we can't, we can't afford to be sending people to, to 3000, yeah. even if it's going to benefit the department. We were so. definitely pushing the limit of that. We got a couple minutes before we have to break for station identification, but I just, you were telling that story and I just had this memory. 
I remember you coming back from that school and you and I were having a conversation. And if you've never worked executive protection, you think it's like the Secret Service in the movies. And, you know, EP is a lot like Secret Service, but it's nothing like in the movies. And you told me about your final exercise. And I'm like, okay, you know, so you had to repel an assault or something. And you're like, you have to keep the principal from embarrassing themselves. And the two things that you explained were that you had done the advance on the hotel and you laid reflective directional tape along the floorboards to make sure that if the power went out, you could get that, you had a path out, an illuminated path out, and you had to pack out medication, including modium, in case the principal, you know, got some bad fish or something. Like, that is not what it looks like in the movies. No, and it was a lot more harder, <coughs> harder to do back then because cell phones weren't a thing. A GPS, yes. Google Maps, yeah. you used to have to keep a map under your front seat. Uh, and if your principal said, you know, take me to a store, I want to buy some cigars, um, you couldn't just punch up it, punch it up into yeah. your uh, to navigation system. You actually had to be able to read a map and get them there. Yeah. All right. Um, so we're going to pause for station identification here briefly. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. We'll talk a little bit about uh, your time in the drug unit. And then you know, for, the, for the remainder of the show, we'll kind of pivot away from the job if we can, and we can start talking about some of the stuff that you've been doing outside of work. Sure. All right, so let's uh, get some PSAs, and uh, we'll come back on the other side of this break. PBR comes from Greylock Federal Credit Union, proud to support high school arts and sports programs to help our community thrive. Greylock Federal, with locations throughout the Berkshires and online at greylock.org. And from BeFair. BeFair is one of the largest premier human service agencies in Berkshire County. If you're looking for services for a loved one or are interested in caring for the people we support, visit BeFair.org today for available opportunities. Pittsville residents, have you heard about Code Red? It's the city's emergency alert program, and it keeps you informed on the latest updates and notifications, including but not limited to weather-related emergencies, road closures, and water main breaks. So stay connected and be informed. Text Pittsfield to 99411 to enroll or visit cityofpittsfield.org to sign up. Hi, this is Sergeant Mark Madalena with the Pittsfield Police Department. We all have busy lives and we're in a hurry to get to where we need to be. While driving, people are eating, drinking, talking, putting on makeup, doing their hair, checking social media, texting each other, all while the dog sits on their lap. The result is running red lights, stop signs, speeding, and finally crashing. Distracted driving is illegal. You can be ticketed or criminally charged. Please share the road and pay attention. Let's make sure everyone gets where they want to go safely. This message is brought to you by the Pittsfield Police Department in cooperation with WTBR-FM. Good morning. Welcome back to a pre-recorded episode of On Patrol with the PPD here on WTBR 89.7 FM Pittsfield Community Radio, simulcast on Pittsfield Community Television, and so I don't get reprimanded again by Officer Derby, also available on all of your popular podcast platforms. As I said at the top of the hour, today is actually, it was actually Wednesday, March 2nd. We're pre-recording an episode that you will be listening to on Friday, March 4th, which means no weather reports during this segment and uh, no news items. We'll just, we talked about some newsworthy items. But we've been talking to Lieutenant Jeffrey Bradford, the Squad B or Evening Shift Commander, and he's kind of been walking through his 
early career. We wrapped up the first half talking about his experience both as a field training officer and gaining specialized training as a result of being a field training officer. But now we're going to pivot a little bit because uh, when Jeff decided to take the first step away from patrol, uh, he, he moved into, at the time, the Pittsfield Police Department's drug unit. Um, I remember you going to the drug unit. It, you were the first person I knew to actually specifically get a piercing because they went to the drug unit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the, one of the fun parts of being a narcotics investigator is you can kind of let your uh, appearance go from that of a, of a police officer to, to whatever. So I grew a beard and I've got my eyebrow pierced, I got my ear pierced. And uh, yeah, it was, it's funny, I like the story that I, I remember the most is I, when my first week in the narcotics unit, I went over to CPAC where the state police uh, unit was located. And Brian Foley, who was a sergeant at the time for the state police, used to have to push a buzzer to get in the building and, or to get into the office. And so I pushed the, the button and he'd let me in. and. He looked me up and down and, and, and started laughing. He says, he says, Jeff, you just ooze cop. <laughs> I, had a, I had a collared shirt on. I was clean shaven, short haircut. I had my, my firearm and my pepper spray and my flashlight and my radio all on my belt. And uh, fast forward five, six months later, and I would buzz that same door, and they would look twice before, before they, they let, let you me in. in. Yeah. And, it, you know, for me, it was mostly just for surveillance. You know, yeah. I, I didn't make a lot of... Uh, hand-to-hand buys or undercover buys, maybe six uh, in, in, in the two years I spent up there. But uh, the big part of that job, uh, I assume even today, is, is surveillance, blending in and not not looking yeah. like a police officer. You got to be able to be in the community and not be readily identifiable as a police officer. So um, what year did you go to the drug unit? Well, you're testing me. I think, I want to say it was 90... 98 99 probably 99 so so that was that was the very tail end of my useful time as a as a drug investigator uh we didn't talk about it before the break but we mentioned officer nikorchuk um you know he, he wasn't very happy with you when you got that job at in the mid 90s one of the things that we could do because our staffing numbers were kind of you know stable at the level they are now but our collateral duties and our demands were significantly less so the ratio of available people was actually higher um, we didn't have people pull into the schools into a bunch of different specializations and so what the department would allow patrol officers to do if staffing numbers allowed for it is we could rotate anytime except in the heat of the summer we could rotate up to the drug unit or the detective bureau for six weeks at a time. So you could come offline as a patrol officer, they'd excuse you from your shift, you'd go on an admin schedule for a month and a half, and you'd be assigned to the drug unit. And I think in my first three, three and a half years on the job, I got to do that three or four times. Like I I basically got to do it a little better than once a year. Just go up there. And so what that meant was you had your boilerplate for search warrant already. You had some experience. You'd probably been the evidence officer on some stuff. You probably testified on some operations. And so when it was now time for a permanent vacancy in the drug unit, you had a portfolio of work and you were doing it. I was doing it. Niji was doing it. 
a couple other guys were doing it, and we all thought that that was going to be the path forward. We all thought we were going to get that job. Well, I would just interrupt you for a second. You were a pretty successful street-level drug dealer yourself. I specifically remember you dealing narcotics. So, thank you. Uh, I like to tell people that at that period of time, I, I was the most prolific crack dealer in the city uh, for a brief period of time. But my cover got burned, and that that would, two things happened. One, my cover got burned just because we were we were doing it so often. But the other thing you already alluded to, the technology changed. It was very simple to do this when we were relying on pagers and pay phones and street level deals. But as a result of several hundred operations over the course of three or four years, um, we drove we drove the drug trade inside. And it actually made it uh, more complicated. Yeah, I think we so, were one of the. I think we were one of the first departments, chief, uh, at the time that was actually selling we, actual crack cocaine. So we were one of the only departments in the Commonwealth that was doing reverses at all. And as far as I know, we were the only department in the Commonwealth that was doing it with actual tested drugs. Uh, and only one time in the three and a half years that I did that did we lose the dope. Right. One time the dope got away, and it was only like $60 worth of crack. But um, most of the time we recovered the dope right away. And so you talked about the importance of surveillance because my partners and I couldn't have done what we were doing with those hand-to-hand reverses if the unit wasn't doing what they were, you know, with the, the general operations. So essentially what we would do is we would figure out a weekend, usually a weekend. Sometimes uh, we would do it midweek, but the drug unit, investigators would let our bosses know that they needed us in x number of days and they'd put us on modified grooming standards so we wouldn't have to be clean shaven going to work for a few days so by the time we got ready for the operation we wouldn't scream cop and then the drug unit and a couple of very successful undercover drug buyers that we had through the state police they would spend the afternoon and they would go out and they'd make a bunch of hand-to-hand buys and we would target three or four drug dealing teams in the city during the course of that afternoon and then after three or four hours usually right around the time it was getting ready for the sun to go down we'd wrap up everybody that we had bought from that day clear all those corners create kind of a vacuum in the community and then my partner and i would infiltrate and we'd take over one of those corners and so you know drug buyers had been going to three or four different locations they were talking to each other they knew where the three or four different locations were all of a sudden, they were cold. Then the word would go out that there was one location that had it going on, and they would all come by from us. And so for the next several hours, we would sell small quantities of crack cocaine to, to drug buyers. And then as they were egressing the area, you guys would come in and take them down. Um, the other part I want to mention about this, because I was talking to somebody about this in a community meeting recently, and people didn't know, none of the targets of my, of my team's drug sales were targeted for prosecution and uh, incarceration. Every single person that was a drug user that we successfully intercepted was offered treatment and given treatment if they accepted it. We sent a lot more people that, was it York Street? Was that the name of it? There was, within within the Massachusetts uh, detention system, there was a treatment facility in Springfield. I think it was called York Street at the time. We put a lot more people in York Street than we ever did in the House of Correction. Yeah, it was, it was a two-pronged approach, and I think it was very successful then. We, we, you can't just target the drug dealers, you know, like you, we alluded to earlier. <clears throat> you didn't have to know your drug dealer. You'd just drive around, and, uh, you know, people would sell you uh, crack cocaine. Um, but 
also had tremendous numbers of people coming into our our um, west side and, and and other areas that were looking to buy narcotics so that two-prong approach take the dealers down take the buyers offer them treatment um, and also then get them into the system maybe into some probation where there's some supervision um, I think was successful then yeah I don't remember what the percentage was I just remember when I got out of the Academy shortly before we got out the drug unit assisted by the state police uh, task force they had they had basically just done a, a count and instead of doing an operation they went in and surveilled the corners that were busy and they did a count on plate registrations and then they ran all the registrations they collected and it was a ridiculous amount I want to say it was 85 or 90 percent of the plates detected at those dealing locations came back from addresses greater than 30 miles from the, the city of Pittsfield and people were driving in here to secure their drugs and so um, we had to come up with a way to impact the demand not the supply yeah and I think that's a component that I think is missing today um, because I don't think that the users of, of of these of the drugs then and now are, need to be incarcerated necessarily but they need to face consequences they need to be brought into the system because just like back in the 90s um, when I was doing narcotics investigations I remember um, drug dealers giving uh, drug users shopping lists yeah and they would give them a list of items to go out and steal I want sneakers and formula um, and then and we had armed robberies then and we had you know thefts then and, and that's what we're seeing continuing today they have to have a consequence they need to be brought into the system and charged and they don't have to be put into a, a jail system although some of them do need to go into that right. jail system where they can get that help but they need at least need to be brought into the criminal justice system where they can be monitored and either ordered into into treatment programs yeah. but to your point about the shopping list if you've never been on a drug raid if you've never been present or you know with the go in and take down one of these drug trafficking organizations um, I I can't count the number of times I was on the evidence team and we would get into a spare bedroom in one of these apartments and they're usually apartments uh, and just find boxes of athletic shoes right you know, boxes and boxes of Nikes um, high-end performance gear uh, electronic devices and they they literally were given the addicts these shopping lists and then they were serving as fences um, so they not only were they involved in the drug trade but they were also involved in this illicit trafficking of of stolen items and you know we'd go in there because we wanted to recover the product and we'd spend three times as much time inventorying stolen goods as we would inventorying drugs yes um, it was crazy so before we pivot from this because I do want to spend some time talking about your, your more recent adventures and I think I'm pretty sure this was your source we were you with us the day that we we went and simulated simulated a drug raid on Dalton Ave because the source thought they were burned and they wanted us to tear their house apart in order to like protect their cover I don't think I was there All right we had we had to we had to go to a confidential informant's house at their request and toss their house because they thought they were burned and they thought it would convince the rest of the drug world that they were not a source if we raided them so I tore apart that guy's kitchen at his own request <laughs> interesting <laughs> all right so um we could spend a lot of time talking about you know your when you left the drug unit and your path to command i was going to spend a little bit of that you you are unique within the department you're the only member of the department to promote to the senior level of command and then 
voluntarily request to return to your previous assignment. Yeah, just this, just the fast forward. You know, was a sergeant for um, a number of years, and then eventually became a lieutenant, which is the dream job. In my opinion, it's it's the best job in our police department because my heart has always been in patrol. I I love being a police officer. Uh, I enjoy putting the uniform on and going out and working in the community, uh, and I also enjoy, uh, particularly the last. Um, several years working with the younger officers and trying to be uh, a facilitator of them. What do you want to do with your career here and how can I help you? So that's kind of the, the, uh, the thing that's making me excited now is to take an officer who's been on a few years and you know, talk a little bit about my path, but more importantly, listen to what they want to do and then guide them and help them along that way. Whether it's sending them to certain trainings, you know, giving them advice, um, or whatever it is, uh, that that's how I want to how to leave the job. But when the opportunity did come up to uh, take a temporary captain's position, um, I saw that as an opportunity to get the experience of that position, to learn more about the administrative part of running a police department, um, with with the knowledge that I could go back, you know. And I took that experience just like I took the experience of being in the narcotics unit. In my experience being in uh, SWAT for 15 years, and I brought that admin experience back to patrol with me, and it's made me a much uh, better patrol lieutenant having the knowledge that I have. Um, and I think Julie really appreciates it sometimes, too. <laughs> Definitely. And as do the rest of us when we have to order uniforms through the greatly improved system you created. <laughs> it's, that, that has been a significant change to the way. It, and it's actually saved the department a ton of money going to the new system from the way we just used to do it where we randomly ordered the same stuff over and over and over again for everybody yeah and it's increased morale i think uh, absolutely too yeah. but officers can get what they want uh and, and need not what we tell them yeah definitely all right so let's pivot um we're gonna have to have you back because i think you know you've got a wealth of knowledge and experience as a patrol commander and as a critical incident commander that could be another whole episode but we had agreed that we were gonna spend a little bit of time talking about kind of life outside of work and so when i met you in the early 90s um one of the things we had in common we used to talk about is you were a pretty prolific outdoors person you're you were a rock climber and scuba diver we had that in common you're a mountain biker I tried. I was no good at that. But you just, you like to spend time in the outdoors. And um, I think we all go through the period of what Dr. Gilmartin would call the I used us, or I used to be a scuba diver, I used to be a backpacker. But you kind of made a commitment to hold on to some of that. Uh, and it's actually become kind of a thing, right? It's like, yeah, you know, you know your back, alter identity, Lieutenant Hikes. Yeah, Lieutenant. LT Hikes. That's, can I plug my YouTube channel? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, LT Hikes is my YouTube channel. And um, I had done a little bit of hiking in my 20s. I had done a couple of overnight hikes. Uh, Captain Trepani and I actually, um, when we were in our, in our 20s, did a hike uh, overnight on the Appalachian Trail just here in Berkshire County for a couple of days. But fast forward, you know, COVID, uh, most of us in, the, in law enforcement, you know, we, we work out or we try to work out. Uh, that gyms were closed. And so I just gravitated towards the outdoors. My wife and I, we just started doing a lot of hiking, a lot of hiking in Berkshire County. And I started um, looking on YouTube for information on hiking. And I stumbled into a whole world of through hikers on the Appalachian Trail. 
and they vlog themselves as they hike. Uh, they'll do videos. Some of them will do daily videos. Some of them will do a compilation. But we were able to actually follow them as they started in Georgia. The Appalachian Trail uh, begins in Georgia, northbound to Katahdin, Maine. And it takes about six to seven months. And so it became a source of entertainment and an outlet to what I already enjoy doing in terms of hiking. Uh, and I've always liked to shoot video. So I was able to take my video camera out on the trail here locally and just started playing with shooting video, editing video, and putting it on my YouTube channel, uh, mostly for myself and my family, uh, just to look at. And then I started planning, okay, this is something I think I want to do when I retire because to take seven months off of work to hike the Appalachian Trail would be very difficult. I'm not sure you'd let me. <laughs> um, but so my the future goal is, is to hike the Appalachian Trail. So I started looking for something that I could do now because I was so excited about it. I said, I can't wait. And so when I, I did some research and I discovered the Long Trail up in Vermont. And the Long Trail is the, the oldest long distance through hiking trail in the United States. It was uh, created between 1910 and 1920, I'm sorry, 1930. And it runs from the Massachusetts-Vermont line all the way up to the Canadian border. And I found out that you can do that trail in about three weeks' time, 21 to 25 days. And so I set my sights on that, and I purchased the equipment that I would need. Uh, my wife purchased the equipment, and I started training. And in late July of last year, I started hiking the, the long trail. And I vlogged that, and I hiked that. It took me about 20, 23 days. I started on July 30th. And it was an experience that's really changed my life and, and it has helped me in, in so many different ways that we could go into for another whole hour. So I want, I want you to tell us some of the highlights of the trip, but before you do that, I, just, I want for our viewers and listeners to understand, right? So Lieutenant Bradford is a, is a member of the department's command staff. You know, command staff essentially is the, the captains and the lieutenants. And he's a long-serving member of the command staff. And, and we, the commanders, like, like everybody else in the department, we generally get to take our vacation in two-week blocks. And then you pick your two weeks, you pick the next two weeks. Um, and then sometimes people are going to pivot and they're going to do something a little bit different. But for a commander to basically tell the rest of the command, well, one, I'm taking my vacation, I'm going to take essentially a four-week block, that caused a little bit of panic. But then for the commander to say, and oh yeah, by the way, I'm not going to be accessible by technology like i'm going to be off the grid for four weeks i got to tell i stressed out a little bit about that sure you know, not only was i i worried about your you personally but i was like oh my god uh but you've got great sergeants on your shift so yes like, okay you know this this too will pass at the end of this we're going to get to see some awesome video so tell us about the trip and, and tell us about some of the highlights sure it's that the total mileage is 273 <laughs> miles um and i started uh, at the at the southern terminus and made my way north and it was just a great experience it was probably the most difficult thing i've ever done mentally and physically um the long trail is a it's a treacherous trail uh, it's very very difficult at at different sections of it the further you go north um so you know we all in the first responder field police fire ems nurses we all have a certain amount of uh, stressors, cumulative stress that we develop over the course of our careers. And I've just found through hiking, uh, it's an outlet. It's a mm -hmm. way to uh, kind of vent off some of that. And, uh, you know, we, 
it's interesting when you're home there's a lot of distractions in your house and in at work and when you get out into the into the woods and, in, in, and on the trail those distractions are gone and so you you do spend a certain amount of time you know in your head kind of working through things that that maybe uh are bothering you or that you're trying to figure out so there's that component of it but there's also a very a social component of it because i was able to meet some interesting people from all over the country who you know flew out here to hike the long trail a lot of a lot of people want to hike the long trail and then i ran into section hikers as well people <laughs> just out for the day and so it really is a full package um but the trail is is not inaccessible to anybody either um you just have to modify. Uh, I ran into people who were trying to do the trail in two weeks from beginning to end. Um, There's one guy I met from upstate New York. Uh, I met him at a viewpoint. We're chatting, and he was talking about how he wanted to do it in two weeks, and he thinks he may have bit off more than he could chew. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't how I would want to do the trail. He was very rushed. Uh, and I just for fun, I said, well, I'm going to just try to keep up with you for, for 30 minutes or so. And, and I did. And then after 30 minutes, I said, enjoy your hike. You're good. It's not how I wanted to do the trail. So if you're older, if you're, you know, not in the best shape, hiking is something you can still go out and do and you just pace yourself. And I was fortunate. My wife is, uh, great at navigation and trip planning. And so she figured out my mileage and I, I was doing between 10 and 15 miles a day. So never more than 15 miles. Um, and again, if anybody, depending on your condition, you could modify that down to doing, you know, five or six, six miles, miles a day. day. It's just going to take you longer. And, but that's okay. You know, it's, it's about taking your time and, and staying at your, your level of, of ability when you're on the trail. I don't want to distract from you, but like you said, this is accessible to anybody. I read a story during the pandemic about a family that threw a hike to the Appalachian Trail with a toddler. Yes. So you, you can make it work if you plan it properly. Um, you said that the trail is, is kind of rigorous. There, there's, and I, I did not watch all of your video uh, uploads. I'll admit that. But I, I did watch your first several, and then I checked in on you periodically. And there was a period, maybe a little more than halfway through, it looked like you were walking in a stream bed. It, I mean, it literally looked like you were walking in a rocky ravine. Yeah, what, and what I've done to about the videos is I've, I've been busy for the last couple of weeks trying to um, combine the videos. So my first 14 days are out on my channel right now. So I have my, my first video, it's 30 minutes long. It's the first seven days of my hike edited down. Um, and then I have another video that covers day eight uh, through you know, my second week. And I'm in process of editing the final video. So it will be easier for, for me and my family and friends, anybody who else wants to watch it. You don't have to watch short, you know, 10, 15 minute long videos. Um, but the trail basically is, it's carved out from years and years and decades of erosion. And so many sections of the trail just get deeper and deeper. And if it's raining and it rains a lot <laughs> uh, in, in Vermont in the summer, the, the water just rushes down those, those ravines and trail, which are trails and you're walking through mud, you're walking basically upstream beds. So one of the things that you decided to do that I thought was both brilliant and fascinating, um, largely because I'm a huge fan and admirer of your lovely wife, was that you planned it so that in certain segments, I think the beginning, uh, and then in certain segments throughout, your bride would meet you. And so like, you would do several days on the trail, and then she would take some time and meet you somewhere. You'd like stay in a and b or something like that. And yeah. then she would hike with you. Yeah, she's a, she's a nurse practitioner at the cancer center here in, in, in Pittsfield. And she 
was not able to get the time off that I was able to get off. So she hiked the first couple of days with me, uh, then she went home, worked for the week, came back, I hiked a couple more days. Um, you'll see it in one of the videos. She actually fell and hit her head and got hurt. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, during the second uh, the second leg of her uh, with me on the trail. Um, so she found, too, that she was I was getting a little bit more endurance, and so she felt like she wasn't really able not able to keep up, but she may have been holding me back a little bit. So she ended up moving into a support role because she had taken the last two weeks of, 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 um, of my hike off. Okay. And so she would come up, and what a blessing because she would – resupply me uh towards the end she slack packed me not only me but other hikers <laughs> i mean it's, it's interesting on the trail when you start meeting other people and you tell them that you have a support someone with a car you become very popular oh imagine you know, it, right? it's like being a high school student uh who's got a, who's the only one that has a car like you have a car like yeah you she's meeting me later today <laughs> great can we catch a ride into town yeah. can you know so she ended up supporting me and other hikers for the last uh, 10 days of our hike and it, it made the hike uh, much more enjoyable and she was able to contribute and be part of that as well and so i i don't have nearly the through hiking experience you have but i, I did a little uh through hiking on the at when i was in high school and college and done the lower portion of the long trail and if you've never done any hiking or backpacking people don't appreciate that the difference between carrying two or three days worth of supplies knowing that you're going to get resupplied and carrying seven days worth of supplies is significant uh and not only does it change the the wear and tear on you physically but it greatly lessens the stress on you emotionally right is you're just like because it, it i don't care how good you are with like backpacking food if you're three days into a seven day stint and you know you're going to be eating nothing but dehydrated stuff for the next seven days it's just a drag right just the idea that you can get something fresh in a couple of days is huge uh when i went out to new mexico just something as simple as canned peaches that we would get in a staff camp would make make your week yeah and the weight the weight is yeah. the big thing my pack was about 28 pounds um that was with with my water and my uh four or five days of food because I, I spent a lot of time and effort and money trying to keep my pack as light as possible um, but when you only have to carry a couple days uh, it definitely lightens the load it makes it makes it more enjoyable you're not carrying as much all right we are just about out of time we've got just over a minute left you've been listening to on patrol with the ppd here on wtbr 89.7 fm pittsfield community radio simulcast on pittsfield community television and available on all of your popular podcast platforms this has been a pre-recorded episode. We've been chatting with Lieutenant Jeffrey Bradford, both about his career and his more recent experiences. Uh, Lieutenant, give our viewers and listeners your YouTube channel again so they can go check out your adventure. Yeah, if you just go to YouTube and search for LT Hikes, uh, my, my site will be the one that comes right up up top. What's the next hike for you? Well, we are talking about doing the Foothills Trail in North Carolina in May. Um, that's a trail that you can do in, a, in about a week, and it's supposed to be absolutely beautiful. Where, where is that in proximity to Rob Hart's bed and breakfast? I, he, he no longer has that. He actually sold that a oh, number no. of years ago. Um, last I knew, he had a farm in Georgia, and he had a home in Florida. Got so. it. But, uh, yeah, that, that'll be the next hike, hopefully, that I'm able to do uh, this spring. All right. Great. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, tune in next week for another new episode of On Patrol with the PPD here on WTBR 9.7 FM. Be healthy, be safe, but most importantly, be kind. We're 10-8.